is, is man, is man a machine? Are we machines? Simple machines that are the products of just chromosomes and our culture. Or are we made in the image of God, where we have free ability to rationally think? Are we just the product of biology and sociology, or are we more than that? Do we do things because we are conditioned to, or because we freely choose to? Here is a short instructional video that will help you decide. You already saw a quick clip of it, but here is a short instructional video. That's another file. I have to reboot again. Hey, Dwight, do you want an Altoid? What do you think? In school, we learned about this scientist who trained dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell by feeding them whenever a bell rang. So for the past couple weeks, I've been conducting a similar experiment. Dwight, one Altoid. Okay. Altoid? Sure. This, of course, is a very instructional clip from The Office, if you've ever watched that show. But this is mimicking the famous Pavlov dog experiment. Pavlov noticed every time a dog would see food, it would salivate. So he decided he would combine the food with a bell. After a while, the scientist just rang the bell to get the dog to salivate. So he theorized that if you could condition an animal to behave the way you want, you should be able to condition a person. So Pavlov taught that a human, probably just like an animal, and he believed most of our decisions, or almost all of our decisions in life, are the results of the conditions that were applied to us, either as children or the environment around us. And even some Bible scholars would actually say that is the purpose of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature would include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, but especially the book of Proverbs. They are lists of conditions that help train behavior. So today I'm going to call this Pavlov's Proverbs. To get the outcome you want, all you need to do is input the right actions. I'll give you an example. Open up to chapter 12, verse 21 of Proverbs. So today... The message is on consequences, really action and consequences. Are the consequences the results of our actions? That's what we're going to talk about today. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21. And just listen very closely to how this verse is expressed. Because we're supposed to take the Bible seriously. And it says, No ill befalls the righteous. But the wicked are filled with trouble. So if you're righteous, then nothing bad should happen. No ill should befall you. That's what it says. And it seems like, you know, really, the trouble is only to the wicked. 
So simple, if you do good, you will receive good things. If you do bad, you will receive bad. So what this seems to be saying is that input affects outcome. And is this true? There's one verse in the book of Proverbs that has caused more problems and questions than any other passage if you actually apply this reasoning. I have had to deal with more frustration and heartache because of this verse than any other because of a Pavlovian reading of this verse. I call this the verse of torment. It's Proverbs 22, verse 6. This verse will torment you. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. So what if I truly believe I've raised my child right? Taken them to Sunday school their whole life, church, Awana, devotion, summer camp, and then my child still rebels. Do I take this verse serious or not? Because I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, there are more rebellious children in the homes of Christians than you could ever believe. And if you've ever been a parent with a rebellious child, this verse can kill you, just about. Many Christian parents have stayed awake at night wondering three things after they read a verse like this. If I, I must not have done enough. I must not have done enough. If I would have done more devotionals, made my kids memorize more verses, sent them to more camps, made them watch less TV, never listen to secular music, or watch scary movies, if I would have been a better parent, they probably would not have rebelled, because Sure seems like it from this verse. Some parents say maybe it's just that I haven't prayed enough. God says in James, I have not because I've asked not. Maybe that's it. I have to pray more, fast more. I need to go to church more. And if I do more of those spiritual things, maybe God will answer. Maybe the reason he's not answering is because I haven't done enough of them. Maybe God has given up on me because I've failed so much. I've let him down. As a parent, I just did too many things wrong. I've not spent the time with my kids as much as I should have when they were younger. I didn't raise my kids God's way. I don't know if you ever remember that. Raising, Missy, did you ever, did you ever read that book? Raising kids God's way. You never let your baby dictate when they want to eat. Karen, you remember that book. If I feed them at the wrong time as babies, they will grow up to be monsters. So it's, it's my fault. It's my fault. Truthfully, everyone in the church, everyone in the church, everyone in here judges the parenting of others. We are experts at evaluating everyone else, especially when a child has turned towards sin and rebellion. Oh, sure, they look good on Sunday, we say, but I'll bet you at home, I'll bet you at home they, they're really not sincere about their faith. Deep down, truthfully, we are natural-born behaviorists. We see the world behavioristically. You do good to get good. We actually believe if parents would just parent better, their kids would turn out to be pastors, missionaries, or maybe kindergarten teachers. You never know if you do it right. So when I say we're behaviors, here's what I mean, and I call it behaviorism snare. Behaviorism is a philosophical belief. 
that believes all behavior is the result of conditioning. For every cause, there's an equal effect. To get the right behavior, all you have to do is input the right action. A should equal B. And if you don't get the right behavior, you must have done something wrong. So ultimately, if something bad happens to you in life, it's probably your fault. It's probably your fault. This is called behaviorism, and we all naturally think like this, and we judge others like this. Someone's kids rebel, or you get fired, or even some people have used this if they get cancer, or if a spouse leaves you. House gets a stain on the new carpet, or the pot roast burns even. You must be a terrible parent, or mom, or cook, or housekeeper. I must have done something wrong to, this, to deserve this. I'm a failure. I'm a terrible failure as a person. God is mad at me again. But is this what Proverbs is actually teaching? Is this what Scripture actually teaches? Behaviorism? From a, what I'd say, cursory reading in Proverbs, it sure seems like it, just go to 28.18. I've got a host of verses that are listed that you can look out later if you want, but just look at 28.18. 28.18, whoever walks in integrity will be delivered. Meaning, if I'm a person that lives upright behavior, I'm a person that's honest. I'm not a hypocrite. I'll be delivered. I'll be taken care of. I'll be safe. But he who's crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. So the bad people fall, right? So it sure seems like, from what I'd say, cursory reading, that input A should get output B. If you're good, you'll get good. If you're bad, you'll get bad. But if you were to dig a little deeper into Proverbs, just a little deeper, you'll also find verses that completely contradict this. I'll give you two. Here's a whole list of them. But look at 16.19. Proverbs 16.19. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So in other words, saying the poor aren't really... Being godly and being poor is kind of a good thing, but it sure seems like the proud are getting good things. I thought if you did good, you get good. Seems like here, if you are good, you'll be poor. Look at 17.8. This is a really odd verse. Proverbs 17.8. A bribe, and first of all, a bribe is where you use money to get what you want. It's, so that's sin. It says, a bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, prospers. So you do evil and you prosper. Wait a minute, this is completely contradictory. There's a story, it's actually the first book ever written in the Bible. It's about a guy by the name of Job. You might have heard of Job. Job had a wonderful family and he was a godly man. And everything went wrong. His, all his kids died. He got, this, he got these, this disease where he would scrape scabs on his skin because it was, it was eating him alive. Everything bad happened to Job. And Job had all these friends that would gather around him. And they gave him advice. Go to Job 4, 7, and 8. 
Job is right before Psalms. So you go Proverbs, go left two books. Job chapter 4, 7 and 8. And this is from one of his friends named Eliphaz. I think he just called him Faz, but it's Eliphaz. Job 4, 7, and 8. And, and he looks at Job. Job's life is a wreck. His kids are dead. They were having a party, and the earthquake came, and man, they died. And so Eliphaz comes up to Job, verse 7, and he says, Remember, who that was innocent was who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Saying, I've never seen innocent people suffer like you've suffered. Verse 8, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So in other words, what he's saying is, you know what, Job, the reason probably bad things are going your way is because you probably have some sin in your life. It's your fault. It's your fault. Because if you were innocent, this wouldn't happen to you. That's what Eliphaz is telling Job while he's scraping his skin, scabs. Well, later in the book of Job, at the very end, God says something that's shocking. Job chapter 42. Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the guy who gave the advice, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right my servant Job had. So what Eliphaz was saying, that was basically the philosophy of behaviorism was the philosophy of Job's friends, and God says, you're not right. That's not right. So what do we do? How do we understand the world? And if behaviorism is not accurate, how do we make sense of Proverbs? Well, it's called... Biblically, it's called hermeneutics. It's called biblical hermeneutics. How to rightly divide or interpret Scripture. You need to understand what's going on. Because a bad interpretation, I'm just telling you, a bad interpretation of Scripture can cause a lot of personal shame, guilt, and hurt. I know people who live under a cloud of shame every single day because it's killing them. Because their friends and their own conscience is like Eliphaz. Did you know that innocent people don't suffer? Then what did you do wrong? So before we leap to conclusions in a text, we must ask a number of things. Number one, what is the purpose of the book? What did the writer intend? And so we have to ask that about Proverbs. We talked about this the first day, but it's good to refresh. What is the purpose of Proverbs? Solomon wrote this book as a teaching tool for his son to gain wisdom in how to understand the complexities of the world. It's a father and son talk. He was using memorable sayings to help teach and develop character in his children. He wanted them to be righteous. So in other words, he's presenting various scenarios in life and he's giving practical advice on how you face them. Proverbs is a father-son relational document, not a scientific study on human behavior. That's not what this is. Life is complex. Sometimes it's crazy. Proverbs is a set of guidelines given so the listener doesn't shipwreck or crash his car. It's guardrails. 
in life. So in a second thing, we can say Proverbs uses inductive logic, meaning inductive logic starts with a specific and then it generalizes about the world. And so in a way, inductive logic can only offer probabilities, never promises. It's probable. This will probably happen, but it's not promised to happen. I like what Jared said to me earlier this week when we were talking about Proverbs. He says, Proverbs talk about tendencies, not guarantees. Tendencies. Ernest Lucas, who's a commentator, says, each proverb is a brief statement that is grounded in the writer's experience. So the writer saw things happen and what he's doing to his son, which all good parents do, is they try to make sense out of the world by offering pithy statements of advice. They arise from years of observations in life and are expressed in memorable forms that contain insights. Not promises, but insights. And then the third thing I would say to, to correctly understand Proverbs, but all of Scripture, because there's confusion all through Scripture, is there's what's called a grand story to Scripture. There's a meta narrative. It's a fancy term for there's an overarching plot line that God has designed. And if you understand the plot line, you'll be able to start to divide Scripture in a way it should go, specifically Proverbs. We would, to make it simple, the plot line, the meta narrative of the Bible is creation. God created the world great. Fall, something happened. Redemption, somebody had to save us. And then one day it's going to be consummated. So look, let's look at Proverbs like that. Let's first talk about creation. Proverbs is going to explain some things about creation, how God made the world. So in part one of God's story, we're, we're creative. God created the world to be designed to work in a specific way. And when he built it, he used wisdom so all the parts in his creation would work together, like a well-oiled machine. Look at Proverbs 8. Proverbs chapter 8. This is very interesting. He's, he's, uh, he's going to use wisdom again, and he's going to use a going to call wisdom a she, but he's talking about how wisdom was there when he created the world. Look what he says in Proverbs 8, 22 through 30. The Lord possessed me, meaning wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the foundations of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. So this is, this is a way, a poetic way, to say that God set up the world with wisdom to make it work and work right. Shalom is the word that means when everything is working well, there is peace. It's like if you've ever, if you're a car buff and you've ever seen a brand new engine on a 57 Chevy and you turn it on and it hums, 
to a car buff, that's sweet music. God created the world with a hum. Oh, everything just works. That's how he designed it. He used wisdom to make sure it works. And so everything in the beginning had its place and its purpose. And here's how he made mankind. He made human beings with agency. We are agents of him. He sent us to work the soil, to make decisions, and to create in his stead. We represent him on earth. And as his representatives, he gives us the ability to make decisions and changes. Look at Proverbs 10.4. Proverbs 10.4 kind of talks about how things have been designed. A slack hand causes poverty. So if you choose not to work the land, if you choose not to try to work, you're going to be poor. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. So work hard, use your gifts, use your skills, and you will gain profit. Things will start to bloom for you. It's the design. You're an agent. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century scientist and a Christian philosopher, calls this the dignity of causality. It's a cool phrase. The dignity of causality. Meaning God has allowed your life to matter. You have dignity and you have the ability to cause things. And so it's naive and it's ignorant to say, ah, whatever will be, will be. It just doesn't matter. God will do what he wants. Philosophically speaking, that's called fatalism and that's a cop-out. That's not how God designed it. We are made in God's image and he has put the desire in each heart to want to affect change for good, to see things increase. to cultivate, to teach. Fatalism, on the other hand, teaches that all events are predetermined, therefore they're inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it, so quit striving, quit caring, and to me there's nothing more depressing than that. C.S. Lewis says, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. That's fascinating. He can change water into wine like that. He can He can make water into wine, but he sends people to plant vineyards instead. He can make bread. He can send man into heaven, but he's got bakers to do it. He could implant a chip where we all just know things, but he's given a father and a mother to teach your child in the way he should go. We're agents. And so, but that doesn't mean God has left us. He's also providentially Joining with us. Look at Proverbs 12.2. Proverbs 12.2. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. In other words, God providentially blesses those who join with him and do his will. He's providential. He's working all things together for good. He's behind the scenes. So when we do good, he has designed the world to bring blessing back. It's interesting, I went down to just look at that grace garden we have down there that we started last year. Somebody planted a little cherry tomato seed and it grows and it doesn't just give one cherry tomato, it gives hundreds. God is generous. And so what I would say is I believe the creative order was meant to be harmonious between God and man. That's why it's good to work hard. That's 
why it's good to cultivate the soil. Use your gifts, teach principles, follow natural law. We've been given free agency and God's working with us to work out his will. But something has happened to his original blueprint, and this is part two. We call it the fall. A wrench has been thrown into the engine of the 57 Chevy, and it's caused all kind of trouble. We call it sin and death. Look at how Proverbs 30 describes it. Because if everything was just, if nothing happened, then I don't, I don't know why this verse would be in there, but this verse is a perfect expression of what has happened because of sin. Proverbs 30, 1 through 3. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary of God. I am weary, O God, and I'm worn out. I'm worn out. Yeah, earth, living on this earth is hard. Why? Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, I'm trying to find God. I can't find Him because sin has blinded us and it's, it's, it's brought stuff to this earth. Creation is not how it should be. There's now chaos and confusion. Same chapter, look at verse 15 and 16. Verse 15 and 16. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, that means where people go to die, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water and a fire that never says enough. Because of the fall, two things have been introduced. Scarcity, I'm never satisfied. Never have enough. And suffering, the barren womb, that's not right. There are some righteous people that have never been able to give birth. So you mean to tell me, if I do good, good will come, not for me. That's what this is saying. It's not, it doesn't make sense. It's because of sin and death. Man's heart is twisted. So they don't just choose what is right. So humanly speaking, look at chapter 4, 14 to 16, where we were designed to be agents. We now, because of sin, are desperados, rogue agents. We're on our own. Chapter 4, 14 to 16. This is because of sin and death. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on for they cannot sleep, meaning these twisted, broken people who have sinned them, they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. What has happened to man? It's dark out there because sin and death have entered. So the story was meant to be, this earth was meant to be pristine, but something entered and everybody's kind of messed up. And as a result, God isn't just blessing, now he's punishing wickedness. Chapter 5, 21. Look at chapter 5, 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So God is watching. And in verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Harmony has been replaced by discord. God and man no longer work together. They are now at enmity. 
They're enemies with each other. You can read that in Colossians 1.21. God is not, good is not who we are anymore. If God left us to ourselves, we would go on doing evil. We just would. You can read it all through the New Testament. Even to where it's like it's, if you read the Old Testament, sin builds and then corrupts and then infests. And then when you get to the New Testament, it says in Romans 3, nobody does good. Not one. That's how bad it's gotten. It's like weeds in a garden. If you don't pluck it right away, it takes over. And that's what sin has done. And so Psalm 2, man raises himself against God and says, let's break off our chains against God. We, let's do it on our own. So Proverbs was purely a mechanical, behavioristic book where each of us get what we deserve and where we would always reap what we sow, none of us would ever have a chance. If this world was completely behavioristic, where each of us get what we deserve, and where we would always reap what we sow, none of us would ever have a chance. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a political prisoner in Stalin's gulag, and he was able to watch how prisoners behave, even in these camps way out in Siberia. And he said, if only the world was so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and just destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Ugh. And then he ends by saying, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So while it's true that the fall has touched us all, we enter part three. I want to show you something before we go to part three. Go to Romans chapter 11. This is, I just told the prayer partners this. I told a couple people this. This verse is one of those verses that I read. I was just reading through Romans and I stopped on this verse and it, it really was like a, like a slap. Like it woke me up. But I want you to just read it for what it, what it is. And, and read it with, here's how I want you to read it. Read it with that behaviorist mindset that points to the other person and said, you know why bad's happening to them? Because they've done bad. Now read it like that. Romans 11.32. For God has consigned or given over all men to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. Wait a minute. All men to disobedience? He's allowed all men to disobey? Yes. So when you look at the word all, are you included in it? Why did he do this? So he could show his mercy. This is where part three comes into the story. It's called redemption, where he buys us back. He buys us back out of slavery and bondage to sin and death. And you'll find it all through the Bible, but you'll find it in Proverbs. Here's what redemption is. It means that God doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, he's chosen to explode miraculously into this world to fix what's broken. 
It's the whole idea of the book of Revelation. Revelation means to reveal what God is preparing because we're, we can't do it on our own. God breaks through the cloud of death to rescue us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. So the answer to our dilemma comes from somewhere else, regardless of what we deserve or have done. And watch, watch how Proverbs 19 puts it. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. I mean, I'm going I'm to figure out how to do it. But the purpose is the Lord will stand. He's taken over. And then 21, 30 to 31 says the victory is the Lord's. He's the one that will gain the victory. He's the victorious one. Even if we try to plan and scheme, it could be plans for good, it could be plans for evil, but God's plans stand. He overrides what we deserve. Fleming Rutledge writes, the central theme of biblical deliverance is not justice in the older sense of the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked, which is behaviorism. It is the coming triumph of God independent of anything human beings can ever do, good or bad. He's going to triumph regardless of how wicked we've done. What does that mean for us? That each of us must be very careful when we try to figure out why do bad things happen to good people or why do good things happen to bad people. Be very careful how you answer that. Or why good or bad things happen at all. The deepest truth of all is that the air you are breathing at this singular moment in time is purely the grace of God. None of us ever fully and perfectly get what we deserve. Many of us are lucky. Many of us are unlucky. But in general, in general, all of us get so much more than we've ever asked for, hoped, or dreamed because God's generous and He's good. Which brings us to part four. It's called consummation. That's when everything is finally comes, what, what has been hidden all is going to finally be revealed at the end. God is working out everything so it will all make sense. Look at 19.20. Proverbs 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. It's the future that matters. And it is here, considering eternity, that he respects human agency the most. This is what's bizarre. You get to choose your ending. It's one of the biggest themes in all of Proverbs. Eternity is your choice. C.S. Lewis writes, it's either his will be done or my will be done. What is his will? 12.28. Proverbs 12.28 is his will. His will says, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. That's amazing. There's a hint that if I am righteous and I'm found righteous, there's no death for me. Righteousness is given to you by faith alone in Christ. If I believe in Christ, he gives me his righteousness. His death becomes mine, so truly, eternally, there's no death for me. What is my will? What if I choose not to want that? 11.7, Proverbs 11.7. Proverbs 11.7. 
Proverbs 11.7. This is terrifying. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. And the expectation of wealth perishes too. So I'm going to live for me. I'm going to live for wealth. I'm going to live for big barns. I'm going to live for a name. But if I don't have righteousness, I'm wicked. And then when I die, I have no hope. And even all those things I thought were going to give me, like a good retirement package or whatever, it's dead too. So how do you make sense out of life when it makes no sense? How do you make sense out of life when it makes no sense? I think to override the behavioristic mindset, we have to have, to have a mindset of faith which is expressed perfectly in Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust Him. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He, He will make your path straight. Be not wise. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and then be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. I once knew a man a very wise and caring man. He had two sons. One son grew up to be a leader of men, very successful, with a heart for God. The other son took a pistol to his head and fired. One night in the darkness of his soul, the second son decided to selfishly end his life. No note was left, just a small handgun still clutched in a lifeless hand. The father blamed himself for years. I met him while he was teaching theology in one of my seminary classes. He was a very brilliant and thoughtful teacher. He also seemed to keep his personal feelings to himself. That is, until one class when he began weeping uncontrollably in front of his students. I will never forget that class. It all began when a very arrogant student in class made this statement during a discussion on discipleship. I see no reason in the world why a child who grows up in a godly Christian home shouldn't become a Christian. If a child doesn't accept Christ, it has to be the parent's fault for their unbelief. My professor, the man with the two sons, looked at the student and in a low, slow cadence replied, Ah, I'm not so sure you can make a blanket statement like that until you have children yourself. The arrogant student retorted, oh, sure I can. I was raised in a home where my parents properly taught me the scriptures and raised me in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If other parents would be consistent, not so lazy, maybe our churches would be full of on-fire disciples. It is definitely the parents' fault for the apathy in a church. The man sat down. And he remained silent while tears slowly began rolling down his cheek. After about a minute, he stood up and said, people are broken, and everyone needs the mercy of God if they're ever going to know the Savior. To blame the parents for a lack of faith is not just wrong-headed, but it's cruel. There are many godly parents who are silently suffering because their children want nothing to do with God, even though they did everything right. Remember Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. 
The student wouldn't quit. I still say scripture places the onus on the father. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. See, crystal, clear as crystal, good fathers raise good sons. The teacher with grief-stricken eyes and pinched brow said, my son shot himself. The room went silent. The arrogant student quickly hung his head. The teacher sobbed. After a few minutes, he cleared his throat and he said, I'm, I'm sorry for my outburst. Ten years ago, while I was pastoring a medium-sized church in the West Coast, I received a life-altering phone call. My son was traveling home for Thanksgiving holiday to see us. And while he's spending his layover in an airport hotel, he took out a small handgun and decided to end his life was the worst season of depression I ever experienced. For months and months, I cried out to God asking why. I loved my son. All growing up, my oldest son had a heart for God, but this son, my youngest, always wrestled with the deep questions of life. He was never satisfied by the answers. I tried to raise him right. I'd often go to his room when he's a teenager, just talk to him, pray with him, and even plead with him. He never could trust the heart of God. For the next two years, I blamed myself. Here I was a pastor, a teacher of theology, always the smartest one in the room, with a dead son. I poured over the scriptures, and the passages of parental responsibility seemed to point at me like an accusing judge. Raise a child in the way he should go. Teach your child when you're rising up, walking down the road, etc., etc., etc. Then I decided to go to the book that had the most advice for child rearing, the book of Proverbs. I noticed immediately that in this book, the tone was different. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and jewels for your neck. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, then you will know the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 2, 1 through 5. Proverbs seem to be placing the responsibility of obedience of the response on the child. In the book of Proverbs, the majority of the time, it is the son's choice to decide what kind of life he wants. Children are responsible too. Over the years, I'd go back to this book and keep reading it because it is clear both parties have a role to play. The father in love teaches, the son in trust obeys. This book saved my life. I no longer felt condemned. My son made his own choice. He chose his own path. My grief is still intense, but I realized I cannot carry the guilt of another. Let me read that again. I realized I cannot carry the guilt of another. Maybe I'll read it a third time. I cannot carry the guilt of another. The class said nothing. The arrogant student apologized. The teacher nodded in silent recognition. The answer is clear. That soul that sins will die. Case closed.